0: Good evening, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah and chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53. Our worship tonight is all about Jesus, and as we'll discover as we press into this next uh, part of our series on gospel clarity, we're going to find out the gospel, the good news, is all about Jesus as well. Um, my in-laws are in town this week. They're sitting uh, with Hannah tonight. And so far, Owen is still in the service. He's trying to set a record, so he's made it this far. Um, but they, they say, I don't know if you've heard this before, but they, they say that behind every good man is a better wife and a surprised mother-in-law. So if you haven't had a chance to be my surprised mother-in-law, you can see her in the back after service. I thought that was pretty funny. Okay. Um, if, uh, if you've heard of the British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, he was a doctor that became a pastor, and uh, he was in Westminster. He pastored at Westminster Chapel in London for many, many years. Uh, there was this habit uh, he had in his preaching. There's a great uh, documentary about his life, called Logic on Fire. If you haven't seen it, you really should. It's really good. Uh, But there was this habit that he had in his preaching where sometimes he would get up Sunday morning before his congregation and he would tell them, Church, the text I'm going to exposit to you this morning is the most important passage of Scripture in the Bible. And when he said that, some of the people would yawn because, well, they heard him say it the month before or a couple months before. And as he would go through and preach books of the Bible, he would say that over and over again. Whatever Lloyd-Jones was studying in Scripture at the time seemed to be the most important. So I hate to say that about this sermon tonight. But part of me wants to say anyway that the truth you and I are going to consider from Scripture tonight, at least I want to say, it's the most important in all of the Bible. If it's not that, we could at least say this, it doesn't get any better than talking about what we're going to talk about tonight. Why do I say that? Why do I feel like this message and this truth we're going to be exploring is so important? Well, because when we look at the truth about Christ in the gospel, we're getting down to the heart of the question, what does it really mean to be a Christian if you ask people if they're a Christian and they say yes you should always follow it up with why and people will tell you different things I'm an American some people will say some people will say I'm a Christian because I vote Democrat or because I vote Republican some people will say well my parents were Christians Others will say, I read the Bible, I attend church on Easter, I was baptized when I was a baby. But what is a Christian really? If we look to Jesus and what he taught and what the apostles taught in the New Testament, we find out that whether or not you are a Christian has everything to do with what you believe about Jesus. That is the heart of what it means. Now, in, in, our, in our series, we have discovered that the gospel message is outlined by answers to four eternally important questions. Who made us and who do we answer to? What is our problem? What is God's solution to our problem? And then four, how do I get included to God's, in God's solution? And we've summarized those answers with these four words, God, man, Christ, response. We've learned about God, the fact that he made us, and because he made us, then what? He gets to tell us how to live, right? He's our creator, so he gets to decide what our life should be all about. But we have rebelled against this God. We've lived against his purposes, and that is called sin, and all of us, are marked and stained with sin. We all live in opposition to our Creator, so that means all of us are under God's judgment. And these are the dark truths we must begin to understand before the good news can become so good. Only a dark sky reveals bright stars. And only coming to grips with Uh, knowing this fact that God is your creator that you must answer to and that you have sinned against this infinite, eternal God and rebelled against him, only when you see that will this third truth become beautiful and even life-changing to you. So tonight we talk about truth number three, Christ the Savior. Christ the Savior. If you're following along in the handout, here's the first point. We go back to the Old Testament and we discover that God made a promise of hope. God made a promise of hope. We find that promise, though it is small and quiet, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, we were in Genesis 3 last week when we talked about how man fell into sin, and we discovered that was not because we violated some arbitrary command, don't eat a certain kind of fruit, Man didn't fall into sin because we just messed up a diet restriction given by God. Rather, to take the fruit meant our original parents told God, you're not going to tell us how to live. We're going to decide how we want to live in this world that you've made. And that is the essence of sin. And sin not only infected them, it infected all of their descendants, which includes everyone in this room tonight. And so God responds to them after they sin, he goes and looks for them, he finds them, they're hiding from God, they're, they're getting close, so they can hide from each other, and in God's response he tells them how everything is going to change in the world because of their sin, how work is now going to become difficult and, it's, and Adam is going to sweat when he works and now labor is going to be difficult for Eve and she's going to be in a lot of pain as she gives birth. Everything in their life will be touched by the effects of sin and yet God tacks on a promise at the end of all this, not when he's talking to Adam and Eve, but actually when he's talking to the tempter himself. He says that a seed of the woman, someone born from a woman, well, Satan will crush, will strike his heel. But in the process of, of hurting the heel of this rescuer, this deliverer, Satan will get his head crushed. In other words, everything that's been done in the garden up to this point, the sin, the fall, the curse, someone at some point is going to come along and do something while suffering to flip it all over on its head. The fall has tragically affected the world. But God said, someone is going to come and undo the fall. Though his heel will be hurt in the process, he'll be using his heel as it were to sort of crush the head of the tempter that brought all this about. Now, that's not a very long promise. It's not a very detailed promise. But it was something. It was something. And as you would expect, God then announces a lot of changes to Adam and Eve. After all, God made everything. As we said, he gets to set the rules, Adam and Eve broke the rule, and now they're going to have to live with a cursed earth. God God addresses the earth. In this new, twisted, messed up universe, things would operate differently. Things won't grow easily, and some stuff will grow easily that you don't want. There will be violence. There will be chaos, thorns, literal and metaphorical. God also addresses the humans. He said, here's what you've done, so life without me, life outside of the garden, life outside of my presence is going to be a lot harder. Life is supposed to be lived with the presence of God, in friendship with God, in union with God. So, once you give that up, God says, everything's going to be different. And he gives some specific examples that when Adam works... It's going to be painful, he's going to sweat, it's going to be hard, he's going to get tired, and when Eve gives birth, she's going to be in pain. Now, these are not the only two results of the curse, right? But what God is saying is that even Adam and all of his descendants, even when they are doing something that is most meaningful to them, there will be pain and suffering. And even her descendants, even when they're doing that in, in life, which is most meaningful and beautiful for them to do, which is to bring children into the world. Even in there, there would be pain and suffering. So in other words, God is saying there is no experience of life that's off limits. Everything is going to be affected by sin, even working as a man and giving birth as a woman. And as the Bible unfolded, this curse came to fruition, it happened. But God's promise, this little promise tacked on to the end here, Genesis 3, it also grew. God added some details to it later on, and that especially is true when it comes to Isaiah 53. Verse 1, Isaiah says, "'Who hath believed our report? "'And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? "'For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant "'and as a root out of a dry ground.'" was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is done. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence. Neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. There would be one coming from God, Isaiah says, who would defeat sin. He will crush the head of the serpent. He will finally overcome evil and free his people from the consequences of their evil and their sin. But he's going to do it by suffering. By suffering. The Jews were familiar with this idea of substitutionary sacrifice. For hundreds of years, they, they sacrificed animals in the temple. The tabernacle and then the temple offered them a, a small, very specific location. In the Holy of Holies, where only one person could go in once a year, and there was God's presence with his people. It was only kind of with his people, because most of them weren't allowed to be in it most of the time. Because they were sinners. But nevertheless, they sacrificed animals in this worship system to not only picture the fact that God was separate from them, but in order for them to be restored to the garden, in order for them to be restored to God's full presence, to God being with them, with his people, then someone would have to die. Isaiah tells us a little bit about this person that would die to accomplish that. They were commanded in the law to worship God by offering animals, and they had to be animals without blemish, without spot. It pictured this perfect, innocent, righteous sacrifice, this righteous and yet suffering servant who would die. Even in Job's day, the idea that only wicked people suffer was just the way that people assumed the world worked. That's how Job's friends thought. And yet Isaiah gives this amazing contrast. Here's this person who's going to suffer unbearably. And yet he will be the righteous servant of the Lord. A perfect man who would suffer terrible things in order to save sinners. This is God's promise of hope. And that's when we come to number two, which is the second great progression in God's plan. Jesus came to earth. When we look at Jesus coming, we're not just looking at a teacher or a wise man or some sort of guru. We go to Mark 1.1, 1, 1, which says that the beginning of the gospel is Jesus coming on the scene. That's how Mark introduces Jesus' ministry. In other words, he's going to write to his readers and say, "Here's, here's the truth about Jesus, and this truth about Jesus is the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news. Well, why is this good news? Well, it's not just because Jesus is another teacher or prophet or traveling rabbi. No, we have to read it with the backdrop of Isaiah 53 and Genesis 3. This is the promised Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer. The coming of Jesus itself was the the, the greatest message of the world. It was the good news of God for us. Now, this may seem a little bit underwhelming, right? One person 2,000 years ago is born in the Middle East, and you're telling me this is the most important thing that's ever happened? You're telling me that this is the message that that, that people have died to share with others? Some guy was born, some ordinary person born a long time ago? What's the big deal? Why did the men who followed Jesus stake their lives on the claim that Jesus coming to earth changes literally everything? Why do we keep time based on Jesus coming? Why was it such a big deal to mark that one ordinary person Born to a family without a lot of money. Born in a place without a lot of notoriety. Why is it such a big deal for Mark that this person comes on the scene? Because Jesus is no ordinary person. He's no ordinary person. And that's what the gospel writers try to show us. He didn't teach like an ordinary person. He didn't have power over nature like an ordinary person. He didn't have power over the demonic like an ordinary person. He didn't have power over healing and raising people from the dead like an ordinary person because ordinary people don't do that. Here's this person with power over everything, natural, spiritual, death itself, even the power to forgive sin. No, this is no ordinary person. An even more astonishing statement than Mark's statement is seen in John's gospel in John chapter 1. Turn there. Notice verse number 1 and then verse 14. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now here John is not talking about the Word in the sense that most of the Old Testament prophets used the word, Word. Sometimes a word could be a prophetic vision. Sometimes it could be written scripture. Scripture. Sometimes it could refer to the law, the Ten Commandments, and then the 600 laws that came after. This is none of those things. And we know it's none of those things because the law came into existence. In fact, if you read the Bible, you know when it came into existence. Prophetic visions came into existence. And if you read the Bible, we see that. Written scripture came into existence. That's what Peter and Paul tell us. No. This word is different. So it's something that comes from God, reveals God, expresses God. That's what words do. But it is God at the same time. How can God be a word? Verse 14, this is how. How can God be the word and the word be the word? Because, verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. All of this, Jesus' virgin birth, his title, the Son of God. John's assertion that the word is God and yet comes in the flesh. This is all meant to teach us who Jesus is. And put simply, Jesus is this, someone who is both truly human and truly God. Truly God, so he could save us. Truly human, so like Isaiah says, he could suffer. God cannot suffer physically. But if God takes on human flesh... If God has a physical birth, if God unites himself to a body and a human soul, well, then this person would not only be absolutely morally flawless and righteous, but he would also be vulnerable, killable. That's what God pointed his people to in Isaiah 53. And Mark and John and Matthew and the rest of them are saying, He's here! <laughs> He's arrived! Jesus is the promised one, the destroyer of sin in Genesis 3, the servant in Isaiah 53 who is somehow at the same time totally righteous and yet suffers unutterable things, the Messiah. Okay, so that's who Jesus is, but how exactly did he go about this? How does Jesus save us? Number three, Jesus bore our sin and God's wrath. He bore our sin and God's wrath. If you're still in John 1, look down to verse 29 in your Bible. Verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. What does John mean by that? Well, if John would have stopped there, he could have just meant that Jesus was someone innocent or uh, someone who is vulnerable or someone who made himself weak. All those images that lambs uh, kind of connote. But John doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, look, behold, it's the Lamb of God. He says, it's the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John connects this person Born in a real time, and a real place, in a real body. To all of the promises of the Old Testament. Given to God's people that said, all of these pictures are going to be done away with. All of these symbols are going to be done away with. All of these shadows are going to be no more because one day the substance is going to come. What all of these things simply point you to is going to arrive on the scene with two feet and two hands. And John is saying, this is that day. He's here. He's arrived. Every first century Jew would have known exactly what John is referring to. This lamb who takes sin is a reference to the Jewish festival of Passover. After the Jews left Egypt, they had uh, this ritual, Passover, that commemorated God sparing their lives... Through the blood of the lambs that they slaughtered. In other words, the destroyer is going to come, death is going to come, judgment is going to come. But for every house that has this lamb die instead, in place of you, then no death will come to that house. You see, the the firstborn in the Israelite families were just as sinful and just as liable to receive the judgment of God as the firstborn in the Egyptian families. Israel couldn't leave Egypt and think, we're getting out of this because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. Now, maybe some of the other plagues would have lent them to that thought, but not this plague. Everybody deserves to die. That's what God is showing them. But, but, if a lamb is substituted instead of you, if the lamb suffers, if the lamb bleeds, if the lamb dies, you won't have to suffer. You won't have to bleed. You won't have to die. A picture or a shadow, as the writer of Hebrews would say, to point us to our better lamb, our better priest, our better intercessor, Jesus Christ. So when John the Baptist calls out that Jesus is the lamb of God, he is not just saying that he is timid or quiet or vulnerable. John is saying that Jesus is going to suffer and die and bring forgiveness of sins through his death. That's what John is saying. And that was Christ's plan from the beginning. Jesus wasn't wasn't trying to start some sustainable, uh, popular, fundable uh, ministry where he would travel around and, and get gigs and get book deals. Jesus knew he was going to die. He references it several times as he teaches his disciples about why they're going to Jerusalem. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke... Uh, early on in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's like chapter 8, he begins the path to Jerusalem. That's what most of Luke's Gospel is about. Jesus knew that he was going to die all along. That's why the angel said, even at his birth, Matthew 1.21, he shall save his people from their sin. That's why he told his disciples in the final passion prediction in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve. How are you going to serve, Jesus. How are you going to minister, Jesus? Uh, Here's how I'm going to do it, disciples. By giving my life as a ransom for many. A payment that's made so slaves can go free. We are not free without God. We are enslaved to sin. Jesus' death is the ransom payment. Jesus' death is what offers us freedom and forgiveness and true, real liberty from what binds us, which is our sinful natures. John 10, he said he was going to lay his life down for his sheep. And and this isn't Jesus making predictions just in case things go south. No, he makes it clear this is what he knows is going to happen. I lay down my life. No man taketh it from me. But I lay it down of myself. Jesus didn't just come to teach. He didn't just come to model a perfect life, although he did teach and he did model a perfect life. He didn't just come to do miracles, although he did many miracles. He came to die for my sin and for your sin. And the early Christians who were taught by the Holy Spirit understood exactly why Jesus went to the cross, they saw this as the center of everything Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.24, Peter says that his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul says that he, that's the father, hath made him, that's the son, to be sin for us. And what was this? sin-bearing substitute like Paul, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's what that verse means. Jesus was looked at by the Father as guilty of all of our sins, of all sins, and then treated as such, so that you and I could be looked at by the Father as innocent of all sins, And then treated as such. Jesus in his death takes our sins and God's wrath. So then we would be free from our sin. And thus free from God's wrath. When when we talked about the the truth about God, I, I told you that some people find a false comfort in this idea that God is good we well, say, I know I've not lived a perfect life. I know, uh, you know, David, I've done some bad things. But I'm just trusting that after I die, I'm going to meet God and that he'll be good. And that's the thing. That's just the thing. He is good. That's your problem. That's your problem. Is, is that he is good. And in fact, is, he's much better than you would ever want him to be. And so when he looks at us, he sees our sin. Unless we are united to someone... Who offers us righteousness in exchange for our sin. Talk about a trade. And if we are united to Jesus, that is precisely the position we are in. Do you see how this is, this is ultimately what Christianity is all about? Jesus didn't save us by modeling how to suffer. Now, and that's how some people want to reinterpret it. They find the idea of substitution really offensive. And they'll say, well, if God makes someone die, even though they're innocent, that's, they call that divine child abuse. And so here's how they reinterpret Jesus' death. And you'll meet a lot of people that believe this. Jesus didn't really die for our sin, but in being persecuted wrongfully by the political authorities, Jesus taught us how to suffer really, really well. Well, Jesus did teach us how to suffer well. But listen, if someone that can't swim falls in a river, and someone else jumps in to save them and loses their life in the process. And that's rescue, right? But if someone just jumps into the river and says, I'm going to save somebody, and they die, that's not rescue. That's just pointless. If Jesus didn't take our sin, then Jesus' death is pointless. He doesn't even show us He doesn't even model suffering for us if it's not in our place. But here's the beauty of it, friends. It was in our place. He took our sin and God's wrath for our sin. So how could something so awful be part of God's plan? If Jesus truly was spotless, if he was innocent, if he was righteous, how could God do this to him? Well, here's the thing. It's not just that the Father did this to him. Jesus willingly took this on himself. Remember what he says in John 10? I just quoted it a second ago. I lay down my life. No man taketh it from me. I give it of myself. Jesus willingly became our perfect substitute. The innocent willingly became guilty so we could be innocent even though we are guilty. The one who did not deserve any suffering willingly took on the worst kind of suffering so we could be free. Let's go back to square one. All of us are sinners, right? We do not live up to God's demands in our actions or our desires. We don't sin by accident. You sin because you want to and because you love to. That's the kind of people that we are. And because of that, we cannot expect a holy God to declare us innocent in our sin. He is too good to do that. We can't expect God to get over our sin. He is too good to do that. So then we have sins that we cannot atone for. And on top of that, this God tells us, be holy, for I am holy. So not only do we have sins that we do not want to face the judgment for, we have demands that we cannot meet. So God the Son takes it for us. Paul says, Galatians 3, Christ hath redeemed us. From the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Even the way Jesus died, Paul is saying, was showing us that God's curse was on him. Jesus took that willingly so that curse would not have to rest on you and me if we are united to him by faith. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means everything. means everything. Number four, this sacrifice that Jesus made was sufficient. Jesus made a sufficient sacrifice. In what Jesus has done, and in only what Jesus has done, you and I can be made right with God. Romans 5 verse 8. But God commendeth, or he shows, he puts on display his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That idea of being justified means that you and I can stand before God despite our sins, despite what you've done this week, despite what you've thought this week, despite the things you have done to other people and what I've done to other people. We can stand before God tonight and God can look at us and say, you are declared perfectly innocent. <laughs> Not because of some cleaning up of your own life. Not because of some moral and religious pursuit. Not because you got baptized. Not because you're coming here. But because of one thing and only one thing. Jesus died for you and you are trusting him. That's it. That is it. That's the gospel. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says that we are no longer children of wrath. We're not appointed to wrath. Why? Because all of it has been taken for us. This good news is that those that humbly come to God for forgiveness of sin with faith in what Jesus did are made righteous in God's sight for one reason and that is because Christ died. And on the third day, he rose again. Why is that so significant? Well, in Matthew 12, Jesus' critics are asking for a sign and he says, I'm going to give you one sign. In other words, if you want to know who I am, if you really want to know if all this stuff about me is true that I've been saying, I'm going to ask you to bankrupt That on one thing, bet everything on this one sign that I'm going to give you, I'm going to die, be buried, and on the third day, rise again. Well, that's what he did. (laughs) That's what he did, and it proves that he defeated our sin by taking it on himself, and that's why Paul tells the Romans that Jesus was raised for our justification, So, what is this good news of the gospel? God made us and we are accountable to him. We've sinned against him. But Jesus Christ comes into the world and takes the wrath of God for us. So, who are these people that will be justified? Who are these people that will be declared innocent? Well, God invites everyone to be one of those people. But not everyone accepts that invitation. What exactly does it look like to come to God in faith? Well, we'll talk more about that next week. So how does this truth of the gospel, this truth about Christ, how does this help us know, share, and live out the good news? Well, first of all, knowing who Jesus is helps us know the gospel, obviously. And if you're not a Christian yet and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, then you need to know this. The Bible makes it absolutely clear there's nothing you can do to be at peace with God. When I ask someone how they know they are right with God, typically if they begin with, well, I, then I know there's a chance that they're not a Christian or they're just slightly confused. But if they begin with Jesus, then I know we're on the right track. And if you're not a Christian, you have to know that, that uh, you don't just slide into Christianity because you show up at services, and we want you to come to services, or to Bible studies, and we want you to go to Bible studies. You don't get baptized into Christianity, although that's a great picture of what it looks like to become a Christian. No. Becoming a Christian means responding to a person, and that's Jesus. Now, if you are a Christian and you want to articulate the gospel well, One of the things we have to be careful of is being tempted to move past the truth about Jesus to how we respond to Jesus. Evangelism is not telling people they need to repent and believe. Now that is how we respond to the gospel. We will explore those two truths in the coming weeks. But evangelism is not telling someone to have faith. Evangelism is primarily pointing people to Jesus. Now, the response they need is faith and repentance. But you see, the good news is not advice. The good news is just that. It's news. (laughs) It's declaring to others, this is who you are, and yet, this is what Christ has done for you. And because of that, will you believe? If you work with kids, this is really important. This is one of the reasons that it took me a while when I was a younger child to struggle with understanding conversion. When I first heard the gospel, my understanding was this, and maybe some of you can resonate with this. Um, I'm a sinner, so I have to go to hell, but uh, there is a secret password to get out of hell, and that is the sinner's prayer. And if I say the sinner's prayer, God's going to look at me and say, wow, you're, a real, you're one of the good guys now. Come on into heaven. Now, you might think, well, that's ridiculous. I don't know why you thought that. Well, maybe. But what I was trying to do when I was first interested in this idea of conversion, I was trying to do something to make God happy. And I clearly, at that point, did not understand what it means to be a sinner. Now, there have been people, a lot of people get saved a lot younger than I did. Not everybody gets saved when they're a teenager. Some people are very young and do understand that. But for those of us who share with others this good news, whether you're a parent or a teacher, you have to make sure you're pointing people to Christ, not a magic formula that works around Christ. All kinds of religions have prayers to get on the good side with their God or gods. If Christianity had that, we wouldn't be unique at all. But Christianity does not have a prayer to make God happy. Christianity means the, the way into the faith means you have to give up thinking you can make God happy. Jesus pleases the Father. Put your faith in him. And when it comes to how we live this out, we have to remember as Christians that Jesus makes us right with God. Some people talk about how they need to get themselves right with God. I need to get right with God. So I'm going to uh, go to a church service. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to get myself right with God. Well, being a Christian means fundamentally we, we can't think that way. Jesus makes me right with God. Now, there are, there's this issue of fellowship where I have to daily confess my sins in order to draw closer to God. But when it comes to my legal standing, that's not based on whether or not I've had a good week fighting sin. Jesus had a perfect 30 years fighting sin. He is my high priest. He is interceding for me. He is the one the Father looks at in my place, and he makes me right with God. There's really two ways to respond to this. If you're not a Christian and you want to know more, there's two things you can do. We're going to have a time of prayer where you could come to the front and talk to someone about this. And if that makes you nervous... Uh we have and you're here and you're still you're thinking that man I'd, I'd like to know about uh, more about what this means or more of what it would look like for me to have a relationship with Jesus. We have a connection card that on the back has this little box that says I'm interested in believing. Check that throw it in the offering plate and I'll call you tomorrow and and talk to you more about that. But chances are most of us in here are Christians. And that's why we came to the midweek service. So my question for you is this believer when was the last time you simply thanked God for what you have in Jesus Christ? These basic gospel truths that we've been going through in this series is not a preschool for the Christian life. Now, it is the preschool, but it's also the kindergarten and the high school and the graduate degree and the postdoctoral work. The gospel is the whole thing. We, We don't grow as a Christian by understanding the gospel and moving on, we grow as a Christian by going deeper into the gospel. We live our whole Christian lives out of this good news. And so, if you've been reminded tonight about what you have because of Jesus, my question for you is, when was the last time you just thanked the Lord for saving you? And I'll give you an opportunity to do that tonight. Let's all stand. Father, I thank you.